Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Uh, the first reading for today uh, is from Isaiah 53, verses 1 to 6. Um, I'm not sure what page that is in the, in the Bibles, but I'll give you a second to find that. I'll be reading from the NIV. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own, our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Um, today we're going to read Mark chapter 14, verse 53 to 72. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Mark followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the host sat herein, were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statement did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy, what do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophecy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a while... Those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. 
He began to call out curses and swore to them, I don't know this man you are talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you would disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. So uh, we're reading uh, Mark 15. Uh, we're going from 1 to 41. So very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are, they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner from whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists, yeah, see, I can't read, um, who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him, but chief but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one that you call the, the king of the Jews? Pilate asked him. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. They sh but they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you, are, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from your cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a, in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sakthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on the staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. 
The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and, younger, and the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Uh, let me add my welcome, good morning, to this incomparably Good Friday. Uh, I'm Simon, uh, known around here as Jacko, lead pastor of City Light Church, North Adelaide. And I set the question for other people to answer, what does the cross mean to them? What does the cross mean to me? And um, Liam, it's kind of stole my thunder in some ways. He should probably preach this morning. Um, for me, the cross means that the guilt of my sin has been removed and the shame that comes with that guilt, I am free from um, because of the blood of Jesus. Um, let me pray as we just reflect on the cross together for a few moments. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you've brought us here today. We thank you, those you have formed from the dust. Uh, Father, you've redeemed through the blood of Jesus. We pray this morning as we continue to reflect on the cross, make it real to us afresh. Bring home the truth of your word to us that we might leave here, Father, willing to give our all for the one who gave his all, that we might live and be free and forgiven. Help us to live for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Melbourne woman Kimberly Deer was chasing her life's ambition when she took off for her first skydiving lesson while on holidays in the US. Within moments after takeoff, the single engine plane lost power and it started to make a rapid descent. Her instructor, Robert Cook, began to talk calmly about what would happen next. As the plane is about to hit the ground, he said, make sure you're on top of me so that I can take the force of the impact. They crashed, several died, including Robert Cook. Kimberly survived. From hospital, Kimberly told reporters that in the final moments before impact, she felt her instructor swivel into position, place his head against her shoulder to shield the blow. Kimberly's sister, Tracy, told reporters that she was astonished by Robert Cook's sacrificial act. I would do that for Kimberly, she said. But I can't believe a stranger who had just met her that day would knowingly give up his life for her. Now, I'm not a big fan of attempts to offer modern parallels to the meaning of Jesus' death. There is a danger, of course, that you'll trivialise one or the other. My point isn't that Robert Cook is like Jesus. Nothing, nothing can really illustrate all that the cross of Christ means. 
But in recounting this tragically beautiful story of sacrifice, I'm wondering, I'm wondering out loud actually, whether we're more moved by the sacrifice of someone like Robert Cook than we are moved by the sacrifice of Jesus. And at one level, that would be emotionally reasonable. We talk about and we sing about Jesus' sacrifice week after week after week if you're part of City Light Church North Adelaide, and perhaps we grow dull to it. The story of Robert Cook is new, but is there more to it? Could it be that we're not quite sure of the necessity of Jesus' sacrifice for us? Kimberly Deer's need was clear and it was urgent. And Robert Cook was the answer to her problem. And we, are we, are we convinced of our need, our urgent need of Christ's sacrifice? Are we convinced that our need is clear and urgent? And if we are, There is no better day than today to pause and remember about our clear and urgent need for what happened on that first Good Friday that we've just read about. So why did Jesus Christ, the Son of God, have to die? Well, in theology, there are several good answers. At one level, it was a simple, profound demonstration of God's love for us and for his world. Fine. The New Testament also says it's a moral example for us of self-sacrifice that we, if we're followers of Jesus, are to follow. The New Testament also says that that the cross reminds us that God knows our pain and our suffering. Not simply because God is all knowing, but because he has experienced it himself in his son firsthand. All of that is true and biblical and helpful. And I guess this day would still be special if that's all we celebrated today about the cross. But I want to say this morning that none of that takes us to the heart of the crucifixion of Jesus. None of that explains why this Friday is called good beyond compare. The central meaning of Jesus' death on the cross 2,000 years ago is perfectly stated for us in the Old Testament reading that Richard brought us before, Isaiah 53. A Bible passage that simultaneously looks back to the Jewish sacrificial system and looks forward to the first Good Friday. It's a passage that's written in the past tense, like many Old Testament prophecies actually, to underline the certainty of these words. And here they are. It says in Isaiah 53, verse 5, He, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. On the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, bore the judgment for sin that we all deserve. 
the punishment that brought us peace with God, our maker, it says, was all laid on him. Unless this meaning is foremost in our heads and our hearts, this day can't be good beyond compare. Over a uh, cup of tea with an older, much gentler than me, sister in Christ a couple of weeks ago, my friend shared with me a little theory that she has about theology and culture. Much of the modern world, she said, including the modern church, is so eager for personal affirmation and self-esteem that we have a deeper version to talk, any talk of sin and guilt and judgment. I never thought of my older Christian sister as sort of a sin and judgment kind of woman, um, but she's right. We often dismiss talk of sin and wrath and judgment as cliched, a bit old-fashioned, rarely pausing long enough to realise that most cliches have within them lasting truth. And coincidentally, following my friend's sister's cultural analysis, I read an article this week on the same topic there's an article written by a guy called Wilfred McClay, professor of university at Oklahoma Uni. The article was titled, The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And believe it or not, it was a little history of guilt in the Western world written by a secular person in a secular journal. McClay points out that there were two pivotal moments in the Western story of guilt and shame. One was the 19th century atheist Friedrich Nietzsche, the other was the early 20th century father of psychology, Sigmund Freud. Nietzsche, don't know if you know Friedrich Nietzsche, but Nietzsche was famous for declaring God is dead. Human beings, according to him, should therefore free themselves of any sense of moral obligation to a higher law or being. The only law that matters is the law of nature, he said, the law of the strong overcoming the weak. Whether or not you've read any Nietzsche, Professor McClay says we've all been influenced by his outlook, by his assault on the concept of guilt. He connected guilt with weakness. Only a weakling lives as if they're subject to a higher law. Only a weakling hesitates to pursue nature's law of strength over weakness. Second turning point was Freud, McClay in this article argues. Freud, really the father of our therapeutic kind of culture. We live in a culture obsessed with individual healing and self-improvement. Freud gave us that. He inherited Nietzsche's atheism and then set about removing all psychological relics of religion. And one such relic was the feeling of guilt shame that we feel in response to the guilty things we've done. Freud just thought that needs to be cured, just like any other ailment. Perhaps I'm being a little unfair, but it seems to me that a lot of the counselling movement today is Freudian in style, desperate to remove any sense of guilt and feeling of guilt to cure us. Guilt becomes something less like anxiety or resentment or depression, just needs to be treated. In short, Maclay argues that Nietzsche tried to do with, away with objective guilt, the fact that we are guilty as human beings, and Freud taught us to cure ourselves from the feeling of guilt, shame. 
It's no wonder then, as my friend suggested, that our culture, even our church culture, has an aversion to talking about sin and judgment and therefore ultimately the meaning of Jesus' sacrifice. And yet Professor Maclay points out in his article that guilt remains in our culture, often unnamed and certainly not dealt with. Listen to what he says. Guilt has not merely lingered, it has grown, even metastasized into an ever more powerful and pervasive element in the life of the contemporary West. Even as the rich language formerly used to define it has withered and faded from our discourse and the means of containing its effects, let alone obtaining relief from it, have become ever more elusive. Westerners, us, hate talking about guilt in our therapeutic self-esteemic culture. We've been schooled to shun it, pretend it's not there, and yet it remains. We sense that we're condemned, and we don't know why, we don't know by whom or what to do about it. Listening to my sister a couple of weeks ago reading this article reminded me of a moment at Norwood Primary School a few years ago. Clearly, I wasn't a student at Norwood Primary School a few years ago. I was there running Easter assemblies. Um, we would go in there once a year on Easter and at Christmas as well, and we'd run three separate assemblies. And I was running an Easter assembly, and it was during the year six, seven assembly. It was number three of three in the morning. We're all a bit pooped and tired, but still in love with Jesus and wanting to make him known. And uh, it was in this year six, seven session that one of the students actually blurted out this amazing truth about guilt. I'd ask the students to imagine their life on film every thought, every word, every deed they've done up until that point on film. And I said, imagine I'm about to press play on your film right now and all your friends are gonna watch and every kid in the room squirmed. Then I asked them to imagine that God was real and likewise that he was eager to watch their film. And this young year seven boy up the back blurted out, I'd be stuffed. It's cute, isn't it? It's illustrative. But it got me wondering how we would react in the same thought experiment. Imagine every thought, word and deed laid bare for others to see. That ambitious fantasy you really want to keep to yourself. That sexual encounter that cannot be undone. The lie you hope never will be discovered. The sharp word you can't or you won't take back. The North Adelaide niceness, maybe the Adelaide niceness that hides seething resentment the dollars we crave and the dollars we spend without a thought for the poor, the good deeds we perform in hope of recognition, 
and any other regret you're glad, you're glad that I haven't mentioned. Imagine it. Imagine if I press play on the film right now. How would you feel? And what is that feeling? Is it simply an emotional ailment that needs to be cured? Or is it a rational intuition of a, of a creature accountable to a higher being, a higher law? What is it? And isn't it interesting that our sense of shame increases the closer we feel connected to the imaginary viewers? You know, distant strangers watching your or my film is, is one thing, but to play it in front of those who love me the most and know me the best, watching it, that would burn. My point, of course, is that no one loves us more and no one knows us more intimately than God, our creator, before whom our guilt and shame would scorch. Professor Maclay ends his story and history of guilt with an, kind of, I don't know, an unresolved melancholy. He says this, the West has no tools anymore for managing guilt. But I want to say that that, that this is precisely why Friday is so good, why this Good Friday is beyond compare. Because the God who loves us, the God who knows us better than we know ourselves, he knows our guilt, he knows our shame, he's come into the world and he's dealt with it once and for all in the person of his son. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. The shame that we ought to experience because of our rejection of God was poured upon the Son of God on that cross. Jesus' death is God's answer to objective guilt and subjective Shame. Jesus bore the punishment for our sins that we could be objectively guiltless and subjectively shame-free. Amen? And I love that. Pardon and peace. Cleansed from all our sin. Objective guilt. Subjective shame. Wiped out through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. The former, I'll finish with this story. The former Bishop of Milan, Cardinal Martini, once told a, a lovely story in a famous public lecture. The story goes like this. He, he said that he knew of three young men in Rome years ago who spent a debauched night out on the town together. The night ended with all three of them sitting drunk as skunks on the steps of this old church. And high above them on the wall of the church was a huge crucifix. For a moment they like, sort of looked up at it, you know, remembering lessons from their childhood, maybe in Sunday school, I don't know. And then one of them suggested a dare. One of us should go inside, find the priest on duty and confess to him all of the things we did tonight and shock him by inventing further sins. Then just as a joke, we'll do whatever penance he offers and says that we should do. So one of them piped up and said, I'll do it, yep. 
walked in, found the elderly priest on duty, sat down, and with excruciating detail began to describe all of the actual sins they'd committed that evening and all of the invented ones, barely holding back their mockery. Apparently the priest just listened patiently and then said, I want you to do something for me. Outside the church is a large statue of Jesus on the cross. He died for your sins. But I want you to go outside, down the steps of the church, turn around, and I want you to point your finger at it and say out loud, I know what you've done and I don't give a damn. Didn't sound like any penance that the boy had sort of heard of before, but he thought he'd do it. He ran outside, his friends eager to hear what had happened. He walked down the steps, turned around, and and when he turned around, the statue this time seemed a whole lot bigger than when he'd sort of seen it before, more serious than he'd remembered. He pointed his finger at it and he he rehearsed in his head and his heart the words that he was supposed to say. I know what you've done, I don't give a damn. He couldn't do it. In fact, in front of his friends, he got on his knees and wept in remorse and respect. When the Bishop of of Milan told this story, he ended by saying that I want you to know that the story is true. And I was that young man 40 years ago in Rome. And it was the pivotal moment in his life. What was it that changed him? It wasn't a piece of religious penance. It was confronting his guilt and his shame while looking at the cross of Christ. Friends, what could be more transformative, more urgent, more necessary than confronting our guilt and shame while looking at the cross of our Saviour? Upward I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin, Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The wonderful words of Isaac Watts. So as I close, how would you finish this sentence this morning? I know what you've done and for some it may be I know what you've done I don't give a damn for others it may be I actually need more time to think about this for others I know what you've done thank you for some I know what you've done, Jesus, and I give you my all. Let me lead us in prayer.
Father, as we take time out this morning to reflect on the cross of Christ, the cross cross that, that means so much to us in so many ways, the cross that gives us in real time, in our world, in in our history, the most splendid picture of your love. The cross which we look at and inspires us to live lives of self-sacrifice, denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus. But more than that, we look at the cross and we see you, bearing the full wrath that we deserved and making an end to all our sin. We praise you this morning that the sinless Saviour died so that our guilty, shameful, sinful souls can be counted free. Thank you that we are right with you because of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and faith in him. Thank you that as we place our trust in Jesus, we are free and forgiven, right with you, both now and for eternity. Produce in us, Father, by your Spirit, a deep thankfulness today. And empower us by your Spirit to give our all for the glory of the one who gave his all, your son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Before we sing, I just want to give you a chance to just sit in silence and reflect. I know what you've done. How would you finish that sentence?